You're listening to the On the NBA Beat Podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts, while the Lakers have two. Bryant, to shot! LeBron James with no regard for human life! Jordan. And now, your hosts, Lauren Lee Chen and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fisher. Hey listeners, the regular season is winding down. There's only a few weeks before the playoffs, and we only have a few more teams to highlight for you. This episode, we're talking about the Dallas Mavericks with Tim Cato, managing editor of the SB Nation site, Mavs Moneyball. Tim has a pretty interesting living situation in that he's been living in the same house as someone for the past nine months. But because they use different entrances to get in, he's never talked to or even seen him before. Over to you, Aaron. Hey, Tim. Hey, guys. How are you doing? We're doing well. It's really good to have you on. Dallas has had a little bit of a rough stretch. They dropped seven of their last eight before the overtime win against Portland, in which Nowitzki and uh, Darren Williams combined for 71. Over that stretch, they played some tough opponents, and they lost a handful of really close games. But now another challenge emerges. On Monday, an MRI revealed that Chandler Parsons tore his meniscus and will likely miss the remainder of the season. Lauren's after this going to ask about how it affects Parsons personally. But how much does this affect the team right now at this critical juncture in the season? It's it's obviously not good. Parsons had been recovering from uh, off-season knee surgery last summer, a much more difficult surgery or uh, severe surgery. That took him, you know, about six months to recover from and then a couple months of minutes restrictions. The meniscus tear is not nearly that severe. He'll be back a lot sooner, but because we're already at the end of the season, this is going to be season ending for him. So it's, it's definitely a concern. Uh, I mean, the Mavericks rely on him, you know, he rely on his shot making, rely on his playmaking. In the past month or two, he's really got in a good groove where he's been making plays and finding his rhythm in the offense and I personally really like what I've seen from him. Uh, I definitely, you know, I, I definitely see a max player, someone who's worthy of a max player coming up. And to lose that guy, to lose a guy who'd been consistently performing for you, you know, lose a guy who's probably, you know, the the best spot up shooter on the team, I guess, outside of Dirk, definitely beyond the arc. He's he's the guy who's out there more often, and he's really helping the floor. And then once once he does get that spot, those spot up attempts. Uh, he was excellent at, you know, attacking and closing a man who's closing out, you know, with a pump fake or uh, get into the lane with a floater or finding someone else. So especially as the Mavericks had moved to a kind of small ball offense, he was really thriving. So it's it's definitely a loss both on the offensive end and the defensive end, which I didn't even mention. He's definitely been, you know, at least average and oftentimes playing above average defensively. So it's a loss on that front. It's also a loss because they don't have a clear backup to replace him backing up Dirk Nowitzki at the four. So it's going to be interesting to see how they kind of juggle that and figure that one out. Tim, just to follow up on the stretch before he did go down with the injury, what was going wrong? Was a lot of it just not being able to finish games? It was some of that, yes, uh, for sure. It was probably the schedule swinging back the other way. This team had actually had a lot of overtime wins early in the season. So I, I believe they had at least one overtime loss mixed in there. They had a couple times where they had chances to, you know, tie it up late and perhaps get to overtime or whatever and, and couldn't quite do it. So it was just a lot of close games kind of swinging the other way after having maybe too much success or, or 
an unsustainable amount of success in close games early in the season. So frankly, I, I didn't think the team was playing too much worse. They had a couple really bad games they should have won for sure. Uh, but mostly it was just the same level of a play with some bad luck mixed in the same way that, you know, they, they, they played that way beginning to begin the season. They had good luck go their way. So it was just, that's kind of the team they've been. And that's just the kind of the, the way it swung against them during those seven of eight losses plus the tough schedule. So between those two, that's, that's kind of how, how those losses came. And swinging back to Parsons, as you mentioned, this injury is not really being seen as career-threatening in any way, or not even as bad as the previous injury he suffered to the same knee. Parsons has a $16 million player option coming up this season. Do you expect him to exercise that with so much more money coming to the players this offseason? And how does that injury affect that decision for him? And do you think the Mavs still are going to be viewing him as a franchise center point for the future? He's absolutely still opting out. The injury changes nothing about that. Uh, in the, in the past couple of months, he's definitely proven that, you know, he's, he's back from his injury, that he, he has recovered from it. He may, he may not have reached 100%, but he was, he was pretty, pretty close. And the meniscus tear is nothing severe enough that it would prevent him from getting back from 100%. In fact, he should be back, you know, in time, June, July, sometime in there, he should be perfectly healthy and perfectly recovered. Even if he takes the long way, the long route of recovering from that meniscus. Uh, yes, I do believe that the Mavericks, uh, are still interested in him. Like, absolutely. They, they are still going after him. He's still their number one target. And as far as I know, the, the Mavericks are still his number one target as well. Uh, certainly other teams will pursue him and there's going to be other opportunities that he could take. Um, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how, how much those talks actually happen, whether, I, I could I could definitely see a scenario where he signs with the Mavericks pretty pretty quickly and pretty you know maybe not investigating his other options but you're you know take, taking a quick look and then rejoining Dallas because he does have great relationships with several people on this team including Mark Cuban and Dirk Nowitzki. On the other hand, I, I definitely think that him leaving is a possibility. Right now, I see the Mavericks as having a better chance of of keeping him. Actually, I think they have a better chance with him getting injured. Because they now have an excuse for missing the playoffs. I think the Mavericks missing the playoffs, you know, really falling off these past in this final month. If he's playing, if he had been playing very well, might have made him think, you know, that there just wasn't a future for him, or that Dallas wasn't able to put the players around him that they needed to to even make the playoffs. And I think that might have uh, swayed him onto the other side where he would uh, he would want to leave. Like I said, I still think that's a possibility, but right now I, I've got to see Dallas as the favorite simply because he is able, they think, and I, I think that, you know, he's able to be a focal point, maybe not a number one option, certainly not for a playoff, you know, a, a contending team, a team that's a favorite to win the finals. I don't think he's a number one option there, but for a playoff team, I think he could be, you know, in, in a pinch. And ideally you would want him to be, you know, a, a, a number two option or somebody who could kind of share the load with a, with a superstar scorer. Which he's not quite, but, but he's a very good player with a lot of abilities. And frankly, with the right teammates around him, which the Mavericks really haven't put around him, he could definitely even be better than he has been in this past two week stretch. And as you mentioned this season, the Mavs have had success using Parsons in limited minutes at the four in small ball lineups. For the remainder of the season without him, how is the versatility of Carlisle's lineups affected by that? And it, are they still really able to go small without Parsons 
it definitely hurts. Parsons is very, very versatile. Like I said, he's he's probably, I wouldn't even say probably, he's definitely the best two-way player on the team uh, this season. It was supposed to be Wesley Matthews, but as much as Matthews has struggled with his shot, struggled on the offensive end, and even a little bit struggled defensively, Parsons has far and away been the best player where he's constantly, you know, he's all, almost always producing something on offense while being really an underrated defensive player. Still nothing, you know, not not all defensive team or anywhere near that, but he's been average. You know, he's really done some good work against players bigger than him, uh, really defended in the post sometimes, uh, even when he's giving up 20, 30 pounds. So, so he's, he's important to those small ball lineups. Without him, Carlisle is absolutely a mad genius. You know, he's, he's a mastermind. Sometimes too much for his own good. He'll try something that, you know, is absolutely crazy and everybody on the floor, everybody watching the game can see it. So it's not always a thing that works in the Mavericks' favors, but in general, he's still going to try some wacky lineups. Uh, he'll try some super small ball where he puts Wesley Matthews at the power forward or something. But he also says, and he, he said this to me in practice today, I asked him about whether the team would go back bigger a little bit. He said they're going to have to be flexible and be able to do both, which, you know, is kind of obvious, but there's going to be some more big ball, for lack of a better word. There's going to be more than we've seen in the past weeks. I think Salah Mejri, a Tunisian center that's been playing pretty well for them, they'll be playing big with him a bit. So it's going to it's gonna be a mix. Carla will definitely, you know, fall back on those three-guard lineups as he has pretty much all season. Uh, but at the same time, we'll see some more traditional lineups that, you know, honestly, at the peak of the small ball back a week ago, we, we hadn't seen those lineups at all. So I, I do think that it'll, it's going to be a mix of the two, and he's not going to completely give them up. Yeah, it'll be interesting to watch what Carlisle does. But now it's time to talk about Dirk Nowitzki. Are you ready? Oh, so ready. This is why, this is why I'm here. <laughs> this is why you do it. This is why you lace them up, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. He became the fourth 37-plus-year-old player to score 40 in an NBA game. I'm sure a lot of listeners and, and you guys heard the stat joining uh, Michael Jordan, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and Karl Malone in accomplishing that feat. He did that against Portland on Sunday. He's averaging also 1.1 turnovers per game in more than 31 minutes per night, which I think is pretty cool. Describe his impact for us and how, if at all, he's tweaked his game to sustain success over such a long period of time. Also, I'm curious, how many quality years does he have left if you think he wants to continue playing for some time? The way I describe his shooting usually is gravity, uh, in the sense that players orbiting around him, defenders orbiting around him, they're kind of sucked in just naturally. It's not even, sometimes not even a conscious effect, but they can't help but cheat over to him because they know how how little space he needs to knock down an 18-foot jumper. Like, it's nothing. So so there's definitely, anytime he's on the floor, he's in the back of a defender's head. Sometimes he's in the front of it, you know. He's always occupying them. He's always occupying a defense to make sure that they are containing him because if they don't, he will kill you. So, so that's, that's a really important part. So even in games where he's shooting one of eight or one of nine, you know, games where he only scores 10 or 12 points, he's absolutely crucial to what the Mavericks do. I mean, it's been that way, you know, for a decade and a half now, 15, 16 years. So he really is a special player in, in those regards. As he gets older, as he is 37 now, he really knows his spots. He knows where he wants to go. He knows where he can get his shots off. Um, and he's highly, highly efficient. Not just with his shooting, but with his movement. Uh, you know, he kind of where where he goes. He doesn't. He's not running off screens constantly. He's not JJ Redick, 
Uh, he doesn't have the energy for that. So, so he's moving, you know, from one low post across the way, picks up a couple screens and then, you know, finds, finds its place on the other low block. It's, it's very controlled movement. It's very consistent. He knows exactly where he wants to go, exactly where he can get those shots off. And honestly, that has allowed him to sustain this level of success that he's been at, it's partly to conserve energy and all that, partly just because this is what he's able to do with his 37-year-old legs. But frankly, he's got one more year left on his contract. He's, de- he's definitely going to play that out. Frankly, beyond that, he could play two, three, four more years just as a specialized shooter off the bench. I don't think his jump shot's pretty much ever going away. The question is, you know, whether whether his defense is still playable. It's already getting getting pretty tough to hide him defensively mm-hmm. right now. And as we go on, it's only going to get tougher. But as a shooter, as an offensive player, he's good enough that he could, you know, really play. He could set a number on how long he wanted to play up until, you know, mid-40s or something, something realistic. But but if, if you'd wanted to go that long, I'm pretty sure somebody would employ him in the NBA. Uh, he's that good of a shooter and that talented and that that well-respected in every way. Realistically, I see about two more years at the most, perhaps just one. But, you know, I, I think right. that his, his body, his jump shot would sustain him even longer than that if he wanted. Dirk's legacy is fascinating to me. He's a 13-time All-Star, arguably could have made it this year. There was one guy in the West that probably didn't deserve it according to his play. But um, <laughs> anyway, he's a four-time All-NBA player. He joined the 50-40-90 club in the 06-07 season. Just an amazing accomplishment. In February, this is the second Kareem Abdul-Jabbar reference of the episode. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar referred to Dirk as a one-trick pony and argued that he wasn't dominant because he didn't impact multiple phases of the game outside of his shooting. As Dirk usually does, his response through the media was classy and respectful. But he obviously disagreed. In your mind, do the comments have merit? And more basically, was Dirk dominant during his prime? I don't know how you could watch him and say he wasn't. I mean, he was an MVP. He scored 25 points and grabbed 10 rebounds. He's one of four players, including Kareem, to average 25 points and 10 rebounds in the playoffs for his career. I I honestly don't know how you can watch him and not say... Uh, even now, when he's dropping 40 points on the Blazers and not say, you know, this guy can still be dominant. And definitely during his prime, he, he was dominant on a nightly basis. Um, he definitely, you know, his defense was never all uh, all defense team or whatever. He was never going to win uh, defensive player of the year. But honestly, during during, you know, the mid parts of his careers, he was a really solid defender, especially when paired with a defensive center that could, you know, Take a slightly bigger workload and let let Dirk really match up with someone who's not a, a premier post scorer, and that would allow Dirk to you know really be a nice player defensively. I consider turnovers, you know, efficiency, not turning the ball over. He may not have ever had 10, 12, 12 assists too often, but you know, just not turning the ball over—that's a skill to me. That's something that factors in there. Like you mentioned, he's only averaging one point one turnovers this year, or something, something mind-boggling small. He just hardly ever turns the ball over and that's that's pretty telling to me and that's something that's been true his entire career so in many ways in many different shapes and forms you know just his presence on the floor with the shooting you know he impacted the game he helped the Mavericks and to me Kareem's comments are just as baseless as you know the the people who are trying to put down Steph Curry for what he's doing lately so you know I think this is just what the old guard of the NBA likes to do they they can't stand to see people the newer generation do things different and 
arguably better than how how they did. And I'm not going to argue that. Uh, I'm not going to argue Dirk or Kareem right now, but you know, just in general, you know, I, I just it's it's hard for people who knew how the game was played back in their day to understand and adjust that that's a different game. It's a very many in very many different ways. It's just a different game now. Moving over to the coaching side, Rick Carlisle is commonly seen as one of the best on-court coaches in the NBA, but off the court, especially recently, he's had some public clashes with some of the key players on his team. Most recently, before Sunday's game, when he designated Darren Williams as questionable, Darren Williams was pretty outspoken about his displeasure. He said, these are his words, he does that all the time. How many times did he make me questionable? And I'm like, what? I'm playing... Earlier this season, Chandler Parsons was also vocally disappointed when Carlisle was sometimes benching him at the end of the games, and also Carlisle criticized his fitness level coming into the season. Obviously, last year, there was the Rondo situation, which probably isn't Carlisle's fault. It's more of a Rondo personal issue, but is that something that Mavs fans need to be concerned about, or how much of an issue is that actually? The Darren issue really wasn't anything at all. You know, that's kind of how Darren talks. There, there was no real dispute or clash there at all in, in, in any way, honestly. Uh, for Parsons, there's definitely been a little bit of back and forth there. But Parsons, you know, they, they still have a very good relationship. I, I don't want anybody to think otherwise. Certainly, Parsons doesn't always agree with his decisions and vice versa. And it's his right to talk to the media when he disagrees with these decisions. And certainly they... They've come to a head in a in a, a little bit during those instances, but in general, there there was some animosity with the Rondo thing. But for the most part, Carlisle, you know, has a has a very good job sustaining relationships with players, um, and they love him for for the way he is. You know, being hard nosed and kind of a just you know tough, you know, stiff, but he can be a really caring coach and really show every once in a while. You know, you can kind of see through that that shell or whatever that that armor. And, and kind of see that he he's really great at maintaining relationships with his players. So, you know, there there's there's flaws that Carlisle has at times. Definitely, you know, he's not a perfect coach. Uh, I still say he's the number two coach in the league behind Popovich, but he's definitely not not perfect in any ways. And there's times where I disagree with him as well. But overall, I, I think that the Mavericks are lucky to have him, and that the day he leaves Dallas is going to be a sad day. A couple of weeks ago, one of your writers said Yusuf wrote a really great feature on Wes Matthews called um, Wesley Matthews One Year Later. He did a phenomenal job on that. And it talks about a year ago, now a little bit more than a year ago, Matthews ruptured his Achilles tendon. And ever since this season, his shot hasn't been there. Overall, it's, it's way down. But the team firmly believes that he's its best perimeter defender what is he saying right now about the state of his left Achilles and how is his confidence in his game and his body? His Achilles is fine. Um, it may not be, he may not be 100% until he gets an entire offseason in, but the, there's no concerns about re-injury or that it's really holding him back. Honestly, I, I wonder if conditioning and just the fact that his, his legs may just be dead for, or have been for a while because he didn't get his normal offseason conditioning and He's been playing so many minutes for the team. I wonder if that isn't the biggest problem. There's some concern, absolutely. Uh, he's 29 now. That's reaching the age where you're about to hit the hit the end of your peak, you know, the, the end of your prime. And uh, there's definitely concerns whether he will bounce back. I, I tend to think he will. I tend to think next season's going to be be great for him. He's going to 
make a lot of people fa- fans again. Oh, overall though, I mean, he's he's definitely he's still confident in himself. You can tell it's trying. You know, you can you can tell he he's frustrated and he and he holds himself accountable when when he plays poorly and the team loses. But overall, you really have to like him as a, as a person. Just being around him in the locker room, he's definitely a stand up guy. Uh, he's great with the media. He's great talking to us and uh, really just expressing, you know, being being a team leader, a vocal team leader, even though this is his first year here. So overall, I've been very impressed with him, and certainly I'm I'm rooting the best for him going into next season. And his mobility on the defensive end looks good. Is it pretty close to normal or not yet? He's he's struggled at times. Uh, it's been up and down. Uh, he he has some really good moments. He's had some fantastic moments against certain players where he stepped up to the challenge and. I don't want to say that he imply that he doesn't in others. It's just it's some challenges he's been able to tackle. Other times he's fallen a little bit short. Again, my working hypothesis here is that he just plays so many minutes and so much time that it's really starting to wear in, wear on him, especially after the long and trying rehab he took to get here. But certainly he's still overall a good defender. When when you look at it in the big picture, he's had a few rough moments, but. Uh, overall, he's definitely a positive on that end and uh, hopefully can get even better. A couple of interesting tidbits. It was the Mavericks that he injured his Achilles against, which is it interesting. Was. And the other thing that I thought was fascinating was he ended up getting 13 more million dollars when DeAndre Jordan left for the Clippers, uh, which which is interesting. Although obviously Wes Matthews, from my understanding, is he's cares way more about his level of play and his contribution to the team versus the difference in $13 million. But I'm going to use that as a segue to when they missed out on DeAndre Jordan as well as other free agents like LaMarcus Aldridge and Roy Hibbert, among others. The Mavericks scooped up Zaza Pachulia as kind of, I don't know if you could say as like a plan C or D or something like that. Plan Z. Plan Z is like... We'll go go with that. That works well with his name. He's such a solid player. He works hard in the middle, is always hustling and doing the little things that you really want on your team. What's your impression of the 32-year-old veteran? Well, this would have been a very different answer probably a month ago or so. Of late, obviously, he's been benched a lot with the small ball rotations and... Uh, I, I want to I want to say this up front is is that I've, I've been totally and thoroughly impressed by Zaza Pachulia in the locker room as a professional player. You know, just coming in and working, he's as, absolutely been you know a great guy to kind of get to know just as a member of the media. With that said, I, I do think his benching lately has been has been warranted. The Mavericks have really used up you know all they could out of him. They asked him to be a starter as you know an older player. He's never really logged those types of minutes at least not in, you know, five, seven, eight years. And and really I think they they pretty much used him up. Uh he's he's not really a modern center in the in the sense that he doesn't space the floor and he's he's not really good at rolling to the basket either. And the Mavericks have needed a center like that. They don't really have one like that on their roster, but they, they need him not to clog up the paint as much as he does on offense, which is why they've gone in other directions. He's also really not a shot blocker. His defensive fundamentals are are good. But, you know, just athletically, he can't always keep up with it. So he's been, for for the season, considering what they had to work with this summer, he's been way more than they could have asked for. He was fantastic to start the year um, as he was still, you know, hitting some layups and hitting some shots and uh, looking just, just more well-rested and healthier on the defensive end. As of late, though, you know, it's just, it's getting really hard to play him. And while while I really appreciate him and what he was able to do for the team early on, and I really respect him as a player, 
certainly his his playing time of late has been warranted. You obviously watch them a lot more than I do, but that seems like a fair assessment of him. Definitely limitations, but I, I guess they went with what they could in that position where they really didn't have very many options. Yeah, they they really had no other options after DeAndre. That's that's the thing. So you know, given given that given that right. they needed somebody, and so so he came in and fit a role when they didn't really have anybody else. And Dallas made a concerted effort not to tank after missing out on DeAndre Jordan after that just wild saga that has already forced a shortening of the league-wide moratorium on adding free agents. I'm wondering how that worked out in your mind. I know that they really believe in Wes Matthews going forward, and it's not always like a a cut-and-dry decision of whether you'll tank or not. And obviously the players and the coaches will try their hardest. It's more of like a management decision. But how has it worked out not to tank? And and again, I know it's not always so black and white. Yeah, the tricky part that is is even if they wanted to attempt it, their pick is owed to Boston. Uh, they keep it if it's within the top seven. But if, if for some reason they'd miss that, even that that's why right now with Parsons down, they're still trying to make the playoffs number one, you know, first and foremost. Because they can't drop far enough to keep that top seven pick. They can't drop into the top, I guess the bottom seven, the top seven, whichever way you want to look at it. They, they won't be able to get a seven pick. So they, if they drop into the lottery, their only chance to keep the pick is if they luck out and actually win it. Uh, which obviously the odds are more than stacked against them. Overall though, I think you, you just can't tank with, with Dirk on the roster. You can't do it. You just can't do it. You, you owe it to him to try to put the best team around him that you can and try to get to the playoffs and try to give him another shot. And going into next year, I say do the exact same thing. It, it may not be the prettiest thing. They they may have to hand out some contracts that may not look so great in a few years, but they they owe it to Dirk to try to give him one more shot. So you know, I, I think I think that's really the only way that they could go. And the other thing is that tanking, you know, uh, it's it's not a bad strategy, but it's also not foolproof. I mean, we've seen what the Sixers have done. We've seen what other teams who have tried to be bad. They've been bad for so long, and they can't turn the corner. Honestly, you know, becoming a good team, a lot of it's just about luck. I don't think there's a duplicate plan you can take to do what the Warriors have done. Uh, do you get Draymond Green in the second round? Did you get Steph Curry and for his injuries not to affect him and to grab Clay Thompson? They scouted very well. They, they did a good job with their front office and, and everything. But at some point, luck just plays into it. And that's as simple as that. And there's no way to get around it. So for me, I, I just don't see thinking, you know, when they run out of options, when Dirk retires, when there's no talent left on the option, thinking that that's when it becomes an option to me. Mm-hmm. Until then, though, I think they're doing what they have to do and they just have to keep trying to win, uh, trying to grab the best players they can. And uh, hopefully this coming summer, they have a slightly retold plan that uh, allows them to finally snag someone. A couple weeks ago, the team added David Lee, who the Celtics placed on waivers, and he's looked pretty good so far for the Mavs. He's rebounding well. What's been the process of integrating a guy like him into the lineup? The Mavericks don't really run a whole lot of plays, a lot of lot of flow. I mean, it, it can depend on the game. They go back and forth, but but certainly, you know, the integration pro- progress hasn't been too bad. He's a, he's a veteran. You don't see a lot of young players or inexperienced players joining playoff teams halfway through it's always always old vets you know like like Kevin Martin or Anderson Verjao or in Dallas's case David Lee so he knows how to play basketball there there may be a bit of a learning curve there definitely was a bit of a learning curve for him but he he got that past that pretty quick so I I don't think that was a huge concern for him and then just since being with Dallas he's been fantastic 
he's kind of took over Zaza Pachulia's minutes at center. And he's not the greatest defender, but he's more mobile than Zaza. I mean, he's more of a threat on the pick and roll. And his jump shot, honestly, is even slightly more consistent the one or two times he's fired that off. So just in general, you know, he's he's been able to do things that Zaza can't. And that's been a huge relief for the Dallas offense as as they've, you know, just a breath of fresh air for them and has really opened things up and allowed them to kind of be rejuvenated and kind of find their groove and hopefully keep it going headed forwards. And another big man role player on the team, the guy you mentioned before, I think he's one of the most overlooked stories in the NBA. It's something that you might not know about if you're not following the Mavs closely is Salah Mejri. He's a 29-year-old rookie out of Tunisia playing internationally for the last 11 years, first year in the NBA. But his minutes are so variable this season. One night he might get 30 minutes and the next he'll get a DNP or something. Can you tell us more about his interesting story, the road to the NBA for him, and also a little bit about his game? Yeah, he tried to get in sooner. Uh, it's, it's certainly not a not a situation where he's just now coming over by choice, but uh, he had he had a few tryouts in uh, 2010, 2011. But but and it was it was honestly it was a surprise even when he made the roster this year because the player he was he was competing with was a veteran in Samuel D'Alembert that you know, was well-respected and certainly was assumed was going to make get the spot over him. But as it turned out, Mejri was a better option. As, as we've seen, he definitely, you know, they're definitely right about that. He's been really, really good for them when he has played spottily, you know, here and there. So I think he's going to be a bigger role going forwards without Parsons. Uh, that, that frees up minutes for them to go a little bit bigger, just out of necessity without Parsons in the lineup. I, I think with, especially with Mejri's game, the first game against Portland where he scored 14 and grabbed 13 rebounds and blocked six shots. I mean, that's, that's a really impressive line. He's, he can do some things and he's supremely confident in himself. And, uh, so I'm very interested to see what he can do if he gets consistent minutes in the starting rotation here in the next couple of weeks. This will be the last question. Thank you so much for spending the time to talk to us today. Mark Cuban, the owner for the Mavericks is probably the most outspoken owner in the NBA. Maybe that's not even a discussion. He's always advocating for unique rule changes. He's complaining to the refs. He's advocating for restructuring of the league in different ways. What are the pros and cons of having an outspoken owner like that? Is that refreshing to you? Do you feel invigorated by his passion? Or sometimes could it be a distraction for the team? It's a bit of both. Um, just, just kind of depends on what setting you put him in. He's, he's very involved in the front office. A lot of the decisions are made by him, you know, in unison with, with other people in there. But, you know, he's definitely a decision maker. And in that, that sense, you know, you can't, he can't fire himself. So I, I don't think that's a concern yet. But, you know, it's kind of the Jerry Jones role where your GM is doing poorly. You can't just go replace him when he's also the owner. So, so there, there's some of that. There's some of that concern just about being, a, I guess, biased towards himself or, or what, what have you. But at the same time, I, I find him a refreshing guy to deal with just because he's so different than everybody else and so easily accessible and such an easy guy to talk to. You know, when, when you spend five minutes talking to him, you know, even in a media session, you know, you realize why he's able to be successful. You know, he's just a very charismatic guy. So honestly, in, in general, I've, I enjoy having Cuban available and as a person, you know, who's, who's in charge of this team and it makes things entertaining, if nothing else. So <laughs> always appreciate the, uh, appreciate the, the headlines he throws my way, uh, every year now. So can't complain about that. So overall, I'd say it's a positive thing.
Tim, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. The Mavs definitely have an interesting road ahead these final few weeks in a very crowded bottom of the West playoff picture. Wish you the best and hope the Mavs the best as well. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, Lauren. Appreciate you guys having me on. And hopefully it's just that. Hopefully what I said uh, turns out being slightly true, so I don't look like I completed it here. <laughs> but yeah, thanks for having me on, guys.